Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service this morning is being led by our Minister, Katrina. And as always, we are all invited to stay for some tea, coffee and biscuits at the end of the service. Uh, Just turn left outside the door and you'll find the refreshment station there. Um, It's lovely having some visitors today, some real visitors first, that's Andy and Mary from Nottingham, and then some not real visitors, that's Willie and his friend Duncan and Jenny who comes regularly to care for Charlie, Um, and it's also lovely having Karis back with us and looking well, Karis, so that's great. So um, welcome one another um, to our service of worship this morning. The May edition of our church magazine. Thank you, Anne. It's a lovely sunny morning and I think it's uh, a few people are just savouring the walk up in the sunshine and why not? Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah and I have to confess it's a passage I had never even noticed until a friend down south who is a minister pointed it out to me this week. From Isaiah chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. For thus, says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. It's an amazing passage of inclusion. And so we join together in our opening hymn. The words are on the sheet and will also appear on the screen. The tune, if not the words, will be familiar. We meet together in God's grace.
we're going to come now to God in prayer. And as is our custom and practice here, at the end of the guided prayer, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer. And you are invited to do that in whatever is your most natural language and your most familiar form. So let's pray together. God of grace, who welcomes us here, every single one of us, who welcomes us here, knowing everything about who we are. We pause for a moment to savour the sense of awe and affirmation that inspires. God of peace, in a world marred by violence, greed and hatred, in a week when our own experience may have lacked tranquility or stillness, we pause for a moment, reaching out to be embraced by your peace. God of mercy, who forgives us every wrong deed, wrong thought, wrong word, who holds us in our sorrow and meets us in our regret. We pause, seeking to become aware of your gentle embrace. God of welcome, as those who find acceptance in you, show us how we may learn to accept each other and those we consider to be the other. We pause, asking you to show to us who it is that we need to welcome. God in community, creating creative parent, self-denying, self-emptying saviour, uncontainable, undefinable spirit, drawn into the mysterious welcome of your love, we join our voices with those of seekers for and believers in Christ always and everywhere, as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
I was talking to somebody during the week and saying that, oh, golly, around about 15 years ago, I wrote a theology essay in which I was able to introduce some advanced mathematics. I can't claim that I actually know the mathematics behind this particular geometrical phenomenon, but it's pretty amazing. If I take a strip of paper and turn it round and stick it together, what do I get? This is, this is the easy question. A circle, right. Okay, fantastic. Oops, good job I've got scissors. Okay. Now, if I start cutting, and I'm going to, along the middle line of my circle, and go all the way around, who can tell me what will happen? when I get to the end. I will have two circles of the same size or different sizes. I had to think about that one, didn't you? Yeah, same size. Let's see. There we go. Two circles of the same size. Now, this is where it gets much more interesting. Supposing... I put a twist and then join it together. Who's ever seen one of these? This is the mathematical bit. A few people, right. Who can tell me what it's called? (laughs) That's that's killed the conversation. Okay, it's called a Merbius strip. And um, Ailey and Carl, you've, you've seen this before. So can you tell me anything about it? What's special about it? Ailey? That's right, it has to go. If we put the pencil pen on and we start it here and we go round. Oops, my, my line's not very straight, but never mind. And we keep going round. And we keep going round. And we keep going round. As Ailey quite rightly says, whoops, we have to go round the equivalent of twice the circumference to get back to where we started. Because actually, this shape has only got one side and one edge. It's a mathematical conundrum. And what happens if I cut around the middle of this one and go all the way around? You think we'll get two of different sizes, okay? Any other predictions? One circle. So it might be two of different sizes. It might be one circle. It could be two the same size, okay? But it might not be classified. Well, yeah, because it wasn't a circle to start with. So, so this is now one of twice the size. The Merbius strip is a mystery. But here's the best bit. This is the one I like doing. Same thing. One twist and join it together. I have to confess, some of my mathematician friends are a bit jealous that they're not in my church this morning. Oh, I really love Merbius strips. I'd love to be in your church this morning. 
how on earth are you connecting that to anything? So I'm going to go a third of the way. So predictions, please. If I go a third of the way and cut round, what will happen? You think three? Any other predictions? We've got a prediction of three from Carl. That's a good prediction. Any? Three different parts, okay. Any other predictions? Any predictions from the choir? <laughs> Any mathematicians in the choir today? One very, very big circle. Okay, well, we're getting there with our cutting. We've gone round. Actually, the Trinity knot needs three twists. But yeah, I, I did do that the other day. You can, with three twists in a piece of paper, and cut round the middle all the way until you run out of bits to run out, you end up with a Trinity knot. So, yeah, if anybody wants a, um, an illustration for Trinity Sunday, feel free to use that one, because I think it would be a bit too soon for me to use it again. So it's a long, long, isn't it? A long way round, all this. So what do we think? We're nearly there. So one huge one, is that what we're thinking? Or something with three bits? We get a chain. One double length one and one symbol length one that are interconnected. And you see, this is the mystery of the Merbius strip. You can either make it longer or you can make more of them interconnected. But you can never separate them. And I think that is a wonderful illustration of the Trinity, if you're going to go that way. Um, I could cut one of these again and we'd end up with three interlinked or we could do, do a different fold and get a trinity knot. It's a wonderful illustration of God's love that has no beginning and no end. And it's a wonderful illustration of inclusion. Because no matter how many times we cut it, no matter how many different circles we end up with, they're all connected together and you cannot break them. And I think that's a wonderful thing for us to think about. And I actually secretly thank God for introducing to mathematicians the Merbius strip with all its mystery, because so much of faith is mysterious. Now, we're going to sing a song that I learned in Sunday school, and I have to confess we have, the words have been changed because there are about three million versions of this hymn, and I've tried to bring it up to date a little bit. And we're going to do the actions, but we're going to do some new actions that we've invented specially because we never quite understood why a banner looked like a house. And nowadays, when we talk about love, we tend to do a heart shape with our hands rather than holding our heart. So when we say God's banner over us, we've gone plural rather than singular us. So a banner is like that, isn't it? It's like a thing up there, and that's over us. And then love. So if you feel like doing actions, and I know some of you won't because you're quite... um, not into actions but if you feel like joining me and doing some actions feel free and if you can think of any other ones that you want to do through the verses fantastic thanks Paul
A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Let us listen for the word of God. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so the eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's some water. What is to prevent me from being baptised? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up, Out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and his sight was restored. He got up and was baptised.
So the Merbius strip then, a geometrical figure that has one side and one edge. And depending how you cut it, you can get one that's longer and narrower, or you can get two that interlock and so on and so on. You can just keep on, as long as you've got fine enough scissors, cutting infinite numbers of, of linked twists, uh, uh, loops. And it's all possible because of a twist. One twist in the paper changes everything. And we talk about twists in stories, don't we? A twist in the plot. Something unexpected that changes what happens next. And I would like to suggest that the whole Christian story hinges on such a twist. <coughs> a twist that we call the cross event. The death and resurrection of Jesus that changes everything transforms a very narrow, precise and exclusive belief system which was only for the nation of Israel and those born or converted into it into something that is mysterious and messy and inclusive. Before the twist happened, any way you chose to cut it, you had those who were in and those who were out those who had the right birth and those who didn't, those who had the right beliefs and those who didn't, those who were included by the, the health laws and, and those who weren't, and so on and so forth. But now, since the cross, however you try to cut it in half, you can't exclude, you don't end up with separate circles. You've always got interconnected rings. And I like that. I like the mystery that is the Merbius strip, which I first um, discovered when I was about eight years old. It's fascinated me for nearly 50 years, and one day I'll learn the maths behind it. But what I love about it is that what seems to be the outside is suddenly the inside, and what seems to be the back is suddenly the front. And no matter how I turn it... I'm always part of it. And I want to suggest that that is a metaphor for the church of Jesus Christ. Because part of the mystery is those who are absolutely confident <coughs> that they are on the inside might just find that actually they're on the outside. And those who feel they're on the edge will discover that at the same time they are at the centre. The presuppositions we have about who is out and who is in and where we all fit are swept away. All because of a twist. It's around about 15 years now since I wrote an essay for which I used the Merbius strip as an illustration. And it was an essay on one of the extra-canonical Gospels, one of the apocryphal Gospels that didn't actually make it into the Scriptures, called the Gospel of Thomas. And that sort of seems quite appropriate since last week we spoke about Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is just a collection of sayings that are attributed to Jesus. And they may or may not be validly attributed to Jesus, but they're still worth 
pondering. So I wrote an essay on saying 22, which I'm going to read to you now. Jesus saw some little ones nursing. He said to his disciples, These little ones who are nursing resemble those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, So, shall we enter the kingdom by being little ones? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, and make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and that you might make the male and the female be one and the same, so that the male might not be male, nor the female female, when you make eyes in place of an eye, and a hand in place of a hand, and a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image, then you may enter. What the heck does any of that mean? I mean, it starts off all right with sort of talking about becoming like a child, which we're familiar with, and then it goes off into all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. A bit like the Merbius strip. The inside and the outside, you can't actually work out which is which anymore. So how does any of that relate to what we've been hearing from the book of Acts? Very often, when a preacher chooses something to talk about, they will pick a short passage. And they just say, right, this is what we're going to look at today, and this is the message I want to bring from it. And that's totally fine. Very often, if we read a Bible ourselves, we'll open it up, and it will find a heading, and it will say whatever it is. And we think, okay, that's what this next passage is about. And so we read that bit, which can be very helpful, and it's certainly useful if you're trying to find something but it informs the way we hear it. We hear it through the title, which was never part of the God-inspired scripture, not through the words itself. But if we take away the headings, and if we allow ourselves to read a huge chunk of scripture, or at least a bigger chunk of scripture, then there are things we can discover that we would never otherwise find out. And that's why today I have put together, in in any reading scheme, two different readings from the book of Acts. Actually, they're very similar stories. And I'd like to suggest that they are both part of the same story. We meet two men. One of them does not have a name. The other one is one of the most famous or infamous in Christian history. We meet one man who could not be more on the outside of temple Judaism if he tried. And another one who thought himself to be right at the heart of it. And so we discover that the outside becomes as the inside and the inside becomes as the outside. And that human categories of race, status, education, gender and sexuality cannot define who is in. And who is out? Because mysteriously, such distinctions don't exist within the kingdom of God. The story of an Ethiopian eunuch and a Roman persecutor are part of a bigger and much more amazing story of God's radical inclusion.
The story of the Ethiopian eunuch is full of mystery. And we do well to ask ourselves, why has this story been included at all? It comes from nowhere and it goes to nowhere. We hear nothing more about this man ever again. What we discover is utterly mind-blowing. He's black, he's African, and he is of a minority sexuality. The description we have of him as having gone to Jerusalem to worship suggests he is what would have been referred to as a God-fearing Gentile. In other words, somebody outside of Judaism who's seeking to worship God and to understand the Hebrew scriptures. But this man knows that there is no way he can ever be fully accepted into the Jewish faith. Throughout the whole of history, the practice of castration and even of panectomy is recorded in many cultures. Usually it would be carried out before a boy reached puberty, and it was a means of preventing him from reaching sexual maturity and a way of controlling him in his adult life. We could think, for example, of the castrati, which used to be employed in some cathedral choirs, and in fact, even until the mid-20th century, there were still surviving castrati in Italy. The Ethiopian eunuch is described as an official in the court of Queen Candace, or Candace, or however you're supposed to say it. But for all that, he has no status, or not much status, His minority sexuality means that he's safe to be left alone with the queen. He's not going to fancy her because he can't. He's not going to rape her because it's physically impossible. Whether he was born a eunuch or, as is far more likely, he had become one by rather brutal surgery is a moot point. As a male with incomplete or absent genitalia, he was permanently excluded by Jewish law. It didn't matter if he believed all the right things, lived the right way, did all the right things. He would always be an outsider. In stark contrast to that, we have the story of Saul of Tarsus. He's a devout Jew, and in fact he describes himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees. One of the most respected in Judaism. And he is vehemently opposed to the Jesus movement. Although at this time, we have to remember that the Jesus movement was still part of Judaism. It hadn't broken away yet. He is so afraid of the influence of Jesus and his followers that he has sought permission from the high priest to rout out the believers who might be in any of the synagogues and send them back to Jerusalem to face trial. He, if you remember, and if you know the scriptures well, is the one who stood at the stoning of Stephen holding the coats. And now he's going to round up any believers he can find in Damascus and send them back so that maybe the same will happen to them. Saul has got no doubt whatsoever that he is an insider. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He observes the law. He is a Jewish male of high status, so he is surely 
surely, acceptable in the sight of God. So we have two men. We have a low-status, minority, ethnic, minority, sexuality outsider and a high-status, majority, ethnic, within its context, unknown sexuality, though possibly widowed or divorced, insider. The division seems quite clear as to who's out and who's in, doesn't it? But is it? Philip is one of the early disciples, and we don't know much about him. But he finds himself compelled to go along this wilderness road from Jerusalem to Gaza. He doesn't go, oh, I know, I'll just go for a walk along there. He is compelled. He he knows he just has to do this, and he believes this to be of God. He hasn't got a plan in mind. He just knows that off he's to go. So when he bumps into this man from another race about whom he doesn't know very much, if anything, but will automatically presume an awful lot, what he does is remarkable. He has a theological conversation with a total stranger. And actually, I think there are echoes of the Emmaus Road story here, where Philip almost takes the role of Jesus, explaining the scriptures and how they relate to this twist in the story of salvation history. And what's even more remarkable is they're going along and they see some water and the Ethiopian basically says, well, how about you baptise me then? Now, Philip could have done a lot of things here. He could have said, oh, sorry, I can't baptise you. You're you're not not Jewish, you're, you're African. I can't baptise you. You're not a free man. You're, you're a slave. I can't baptise you because, well, you know, your sexuality. He could have said, well, I will, but first pray the sinner's prayer. Or he could have said, well, yes, but before that, you need to go and change your lifestyle. Or he could have said, and this is probably what I would have done. Actually, do you know what? I've got to go and speak to Peter and, and the others first. I need to find out what's the right thing to do here. But he didn't. didn't do any of those things. Instead, a devout Jew and Jesus follower called Philip walked into the water with an unnamed, physically incomplete, low-status foreigner and baptised him. That blows my mind. There is a theologian called John J. McNeil who says he likes to think that this man was, quotes, the first gay baptised Christian, end quotes. And certainly a Presbyterian minister called Jack Rogers writes this, quote, the fact that the first Gentile convert to Christianity is from a sexual minority and a different race, ethnicity and nationality altogether, end quote, calls Christians to be radically inclusive and welcoming. The first person to be baptised was an outsider on every possible count. 
Now, maybe you've never had to think about sexuality. Maybe it was always straightforward for you one way or the other. I had to work very hard to think it through. And maybe I read all the wrong books. But I cannot recall this story ever being used in response to what are sometimes referred to as the clobber texts on sexuality. But the key thing here is that radical inclusion from God, meted through Philip, brings this man from the outside to the inside. And no questions are asked. Let's go back to Saul, shall we? He's also on a journey. He's going to Damascus and he has murder in mind. His encounter is dramatic and life-changing as he finds himself blinded by his great light. And in that moment, his world is turned upside down because he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He could be blind for the rest of his life. And if that's the case, now he's an outsider. He can't see and he won't be able to fulfil a role within Judaism anymore because he's now damaged. Whatever we may make of Paul as a person, he must have been terrified in that moment. A powerful man became powerless. He was totally at the mercy of somebody else who took him by the hand and led him, but he got no idea where they were taking him. They could have taken him away to kill him or to shove him in under a boulder or goodness knows what. <coughs> if there's nothing else for us to take away from this story of Saul's rape, Paul... It's a reminder that powerful people, powerful people on the inside, our politicians, the leaders of commerce and industry, are just as much human as the rest of us. And they're just as vulnerable as the rest of us, and that their lives can be turned upside down in an instant. There's been quite a lot in the Christian media recently, and particularly the far-right Christian media, about somebody who is perceived to have fallen. A high-status, well-respected, charismatic leader has behaved inappropriately and the vultures are straight in there. We're reminded of the words of Jesus, judge not, lest you be judged. However Saul felt, we're given some insights as to how others perceived him from what we, what we hear from Ananias. He was terrified, utterly Scared witless, or words that rhyme with it. And he knew the reputation of Saul. He knew that he could be arrested and whisked away to Jerusalem. And his response to God is recorded. Are you sure, God? You know like what he's done to the believers in Jerusalem. And you know that he's got authority to arrest those of us who believe in Jesus. And God says, basically, yep. I'm telling you to go to him because he's the one that I have chosen to go to the Gentiles, to the outsiders, to the people perceived as being beyond the pale, to the people that nobody else wants to reach out to. And Ananias did so. He laid his hands on him, he prayed for him, and his sight was restored. And then we have another baptism, this time of Saul. We don't know where they went to do it. We don't know who did it. We just know that he was baptised. And a new story began 
within the, the bigger story of Christianity. And again, Ananias could have said to Saul, well, before I baptise you, you need to repent of all you've done. Or you need to make reparation to those you've harmed. Or actually, you need to step away from all that privilege and power that you take for granted. He too could have said, well, you know, Saul, on your knees, sinner's prayer it is. He could have said, well, yeah, but sort your lifestyle out first. And Ananias, who wasn't even one of the leaders within the emerging Jesus movement, could have said, actually, do you know what? I I can't make that call. I need to speak to Peter or one of the others. But he didn't. And so a previously unknown Jewish Jesus follower called Ananias witnessed a high-status Roman citizen and Jewish fundamentalist named Saul pass through the waters of baptism. And that blows my mind too. No sooner have we heard of the baptism of an unnamed man who represents all that the church has excluded and all those whom the church continues to exclude on the grounds of their ethnicity, their sexuality, their physicality or their status, we hear the baptism of Saul, the man whose words are used to justify that. So two baptisms. The unnamed eunuch who represents, if you like, gay people, disabled people, single people, people with learning disabilities, people who are black, people who are Chinese, people who are whatever it is that the nice hardline church thinks are out. And we have the baptism of Saul who represents the church in all its concern for purity and righteousness and getting it right with God and so will persecute others. These two extremes, these two people are baptised and brought into the one. Just like Peter, who we heard about last week, Saul's got an awful lot to learn about what it means to follow Jesus. And I think, if I'm honest... As I have read his writings, the writings attributed to Paul over the years, I've read it through a Western 20th, 21st century hacked-off lens that sees it, well, you know, he's still got it in for women and he's still not very good about that. But actually, actually in its own context, it is pretty radical. And there are feminine theologians who will tell you that Paul is more radical, including women, than Luke who's the one we think is the good guy. I don't always agree with what Paul has to say. He might be right, I might be right, we might both be wrong. But I think that just recognises something of the complexity and the wonder that is the scriptures and that is the church. Because here is the mystery. The Ethiopian eunuch and the Apostle Paul are both on the inside having been in some way on the outside and there is space for each of them as there is for each of us in the kingdom of God